When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You just bought a home in the suburbs, but no one told you about all the birds. Specifically, this one, who seems to be calling out Roy. Roy. But who exactly is Roy? And why doesn't he ever respond? Maybe Roy is just bird speak for save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. I guess until Roy answers, we'll never know. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Forbes senior editor Zach O'Malley-Greenberg joins Nate to discuss his book, Three Kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, and hip-hop's multi-billion dollar rise. They talk about how hip-hop's 90s boom produced three of the wealthiest music entrepreneurs since Barry Gordy. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, the author of Three Kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, and Hip-Hop's Multi-Billion Dollar Rise. Zach, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Cool. This is a really enjoyable book and an interesting angle. Um, the, the phenomenon we've seen in the last 20 years of musicians, particularly these three musicians, rising into the economic elite is pretty unprecedented in music. The only musicians I can think of coming anywhere close to this kind of money would be Paul McCartney and Gene Autry going way, way back. Gene Autry and Buck Owens from the country world. But what happened that these three young entrepreneurs got so wealthy? Yeah, you know, uh, it's it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Um, Jay-Z is the only musician uh, whose net worth is estimated at a billion dollars or more um, in, in the world of any genre right now. And uh, and Diddy and Dr. Dre are, are, are close behind. And as you mentioned, Paul McCartney's up there. Um, you know, Bono, somebody else who, who's done pretty well for himself. But uh but yeah, you know, I think when you look at the rise of these three kings of hip hop, um, you know, 
they uh, they kind of grew in tandem with this genre that you know really ended up taking over the world, and not just in terms of music, but in fashion and um, beverages and you know uh, sneakers, you name it. So um, you know, at the same time they were elevating hip hop, um, they were also being elevated by hip hop, and sort of you know um, if you want to think of it as uh, as, as sort of, you know, industrial, early industrialists, um, you know, the ones who were bringing along, uh, uh, you know, the railroads or, or what have you, um, you know, making huge fortunes off of that. And, and um, you know, in a funny way, uh, Jay-Z and Diddy and Dr. Dre are kind of like the, the captains of industry, um, you know, for, for the hip hop business. And let's explain a little bit of the background on your title. In the introduction, uh, Fab Five Freddy, or the foreword by Fab Five Freddy, he explains the concept of a king in hip-hop, and it actually comes from the graffiti wing of the four branches of hip-hop rather than the rapping or the DJing side. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, basically what Fab Five Freddy, who was sort of one of the original pioneers of graffiti um, and, and, you know, one of the ones who really kind of connected it to the, uh, the, the downtown scene, um, said in, in the forward is, is that, you know, back in the, back in the day, um, w- when you would go around and, and sort of, um, uh, you know, tag different parts of the city and, and, you know, to, to kind of establish yourself as an artist, he said, um, I can even read you the, the exact thing that he said, um, he said graffiti writers place a crown over their names uh, to feel the right that they earned to do so after extensive tagging or bombing um, of different areas of the city. So, you know, basically uh, it was a way of establishing, um, you know, oneself in, in this particular expression of hip hop. Uh, you know, the crown signified that, that you had kind of made it. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that that theme certainly stretches through, um, you know, hip hop over to the lyrical side as well, obviously. And so as much as you are doing this as a as a tripart biography, you're very clear from the beginning that these are three very different people. Explain a little bit about the, the different sort of personality types that you describe uh, each of our principals, Jay-Z, uh, Diddy and Dr. Dre as having. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny, um, uh, maybe to the casual observer, uh, you know, they sound like they have sort of a similar job description anyway, hip-hop mogul, uh, if you will, but um, you kind of couldn't come up with three more radically different personalities, and, um, you know, they are ultimately uh, friends, although they've been rivals at various points, but um, but yeah, you know, you, you look at uh, Diddy, and he's sort of this um, you know, very extroverted, in-your-face kind of um, salesman, super charismatic. Uh, you know, can light up a room uh, like like nobody else. Then you've got Dr. Dre, who's sort of the polar opposite, extremely introverted, um, perfectionist. You know, will will kind of tinker with a with an album or an idea for you know for a decade before putting it out. Um, and then you've got Jay Z, who's somewhere in between. Um, you know, not necessarily the, the chattiest one uh, in whatever group he's in, but he'll kind of hang back and observe and, and pipe in with a witty remark or that kind of thing. And, um, you know, plays business like a chess game. And, and, you know, as you watch sort of through the course of the book, you'll see things that he does 
you know, um, steps that he takes, uh, let's say in, in the late nineties or early two thousands, uh, you know, unfolding still to this very day. So, um, definitely, you know, the master planner of the bunch and, um, you know, just three very different, uh, styles of entrepreneurship. And I think one of the cool things about the book is, you know, for, for aspiring entrepreneurs reading it, you know, there's, there's sort of some personality in there for, for everyone. Right. So, if you were just reading a book about Diddy and and you were an introvert, you might be like, well, that's nice, but you know, I can't really turn it on like that. Um, it, versus if you were, you know, um, if more of an extrovert and you're trying to read about Dr. Dre, uh, it's, you know, it's like, well, I don't have the patience to sit around and, you know, in, in my lab and, uh, and work on an idea for, for 10 years. So, um, you know, ideally there's, there's something for everybody in there. And so each of them come from a very different place. And let, let's talk about the places they came from. And starting with Dr. Dre, who was born Andre Young and came from Compton in California, way outside. I mean, this Compton, I guess, is the first non-New York area to make an impact on rap. And Dre started out, I mean, he's the only one of these three that could be said to be of the second generation of hip-hop with the World Cross Wrecking Crew and NWA, then in the third generation with The Chronic and his work with Snoop Dogg and, and Ford. Tell us a little bit about Dre coming up in Compton. Yeah, you know, um, Compton is a really interesting place on the outskirts of Los Angeles, part of Los Angeles, but like really on the on the edge of the uh, of sort of like the, the most urban part of it. Um, and, you know, it was, it was built as this sort of... Um, you know, place that families could come and live in, in the golden sunshine and, you know, have good factory jobs and, and so forth. Um, but it was one of these neighborhoods, these sort of, you know, edge neighborhoods um, that fell victim to a lot of the, the really deeply racist housing policies that existed in the United States um, in the early and middle part of the century. And so you had practices like redlining that really limited investment um, and, you know, uh, kind of designating areas of, of, of neighborhoods that, you know, banks would not, um, you know, put money into. And so you, you had this chronic underinvestment, um, you had, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, a white flight, you had, uh, you know, a lot of, um, parts of this neighborhood falling into disrepair, uh, being ignored by, you know, uh, sort of city planners in that regard. And, um, and, and, you know, and having gangs sort of take over. And that's the milieu in, in which Dre grew up. And, you know, at the same time, he had a lot of exposure to music. Um, his mom was really into records and, you know, would, would pay him a couple bucks to spend um, when he was a little kid, at, you know, put on different LPs uh, uh, when she would have her friends over and so forth. So um, that's how he got his, his interest in, music and you know at the time you had that sort of first wave of hip-hop um you know some some of the the early 1980s acts from new york would come through and play in la and you know drake found himself kind of inspired by that as the oldest of the three kings really kind of catching that you know like you said that sort of second um wave you know and becoming part of it with his first group the, the world-class wrecking crew and in contrast, Diddy, a.k.a. Uh, Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, he comes out of Harlem in a pretty privileged background. 
Yeah, you know, it was, uh, I'd say for sure, out of the three kings, he had the most privileged background. And, you know, a lot of people think of Harlem. And what do you think of when you think of Harlem? It's kind of complicated because, you know, you have um, the Harlem of, you know, uh, let's say the early um, the early 20th century. Um, you know, you have, you know, the, the Harlem Renaissance. You have, you know, all these kind of, um, ideas of Harlem as, as the capital of black America. And then you also have, you know, sort of like seventies and eighties Harlem, um, when it fell into sort of disrepair along with much of New York, uh, was underfunded in much of the same ways that, uh, parts of Compton where, where Gray grew up, uh, where Dre grew up. And then you think of Harlem today, um, as sort of an up and coming, uh, you know, a, like a very desirable place to live, um, for young professionals and such. So, you know, Diddy, Diddy kind of draws on all those different identities of Harlem as, uh, of Harlem as needed. And, and another one that is, you know, kind of falls somewhere in between the first and the second one is, um, sort of the, the idea of like the Harlem gangster, um, you know, popularized in American gangster. You have, uh, Frank Lucas and, and guys like that, um, who sort of came to control the, the drug trade and the numbers racket in Harlem and, and, you know, kept it um, uh, prosperous on a certain level uh, when other parts of the city were, were you know, in, in decline. So um, Diddy's father was actually an associate of, of some of these, uh, these um, you know, underworld uh, moguls, if you will. And he was gunned down when Diddy was just a toddler. So Diddy actually only spent the first few years of his life in Harlem and then um, moved out to the suburbs to Mount Vernon and, you know, and had like a fairly middle-class upbringing, went to, you know, private Catholic high school and, um, and then went off to Howard uh, college for a year, Howard university before coming back to, uh, to be an intern at bad boy records, or to say at uptown records and start bad boy records. So uh, you had like three, you know, pretty different um, uh, modes of upbringing, although, yeah, you have the through line as well going through. Yeah, they're all all uh, fathers, uh, children of single mothers. But the, the P Diddy story that I love in the in, in here is that when he moves out to Mount Vernon and the white kids want to invite them him over to their pools, he badgers his mom until she builds a pool of their own and then becomes kind of a hub of the social scene that way. Yeah, but, it's, it's very Diddy and. Um, you know, and it, it, it wasn't like a, a super duper opulent neighborhood. I think it was an above ground pool, you know, but still uh, they, his family had enough money that, that they could do something like that. But, you know, it, it's, it's, I think the other telling part of, of that anecdote there with Diddy and, and, you know, the pool is he wasn't like, well, you know, I don't want any of you to come to, um, to my pool uh, now that I have the bigger pool. He, he got the bigger pool so that, that everybody would come over to his house, um, you know, including the white kids. And, and I think this is, uh, this is a theme that kind of like pervades Diddy's career and, you know, all the way up through his, his white party, which his legendary bashes that he would throw in the Hamptons where, you know, it's sort of Gatsbyan, right? He gets this house, um, you know, on the, on the edge of town, uh, you know, with the pool, but then he, then he, you know, develops this whole thing, where, you know, his party becomes so desirable um, that, that all the people who, you know, uh, sort of used to close doors in his face are suddenly pouring in and, and you know, falling all over themselves to get into his party. 
And meanwhile, uh, Jay-Z, born Sean Carter, is having kind of more of the quintessential hip-hop childhood in Brooklyn. That's right, yeah. Um, Jay-Z grew up in the Marcy Houses, uh, which is a you know, rather notorious housing project in, um, in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn. Uh, and although, you know, the neighborhood, um, you know, these days is, is becoming pretty trendy, uh, it was not um, back in those days. And Jay-Z had a pretty tough situation. Um, you know, his father left the family when he was very young. Uh, you know, there was often not food on the table at home and he would have to go to, uh, neighbors' houses, uh, just to eat dinner. So, you know, um, definitely more of a, more of a grind there for Jay-Z than it was for, for Diddy growing up. And all three of them get into the music business fairly quickly. Dre being older than the other two, uh, and just a precocious talent. I mean, he's, he's drafted into the world-class wrecking crew, which is, uh, one of these early 80s style groups out of L.A., big sort of techno-electronic sound, like something you would hear from Two Live Crew later is the kind of stuff they were doing. And then he leaves that crew after he sees Run DMC and gets involved with a guy named Easy e Eric Wright, and Ruthless Records and N.W.A. Tell us just a quick capsule version of that coming together. Story. Yeah, so it's kind of... It's kind of fascinating when you think about it. Um, you know, World Class Wrecking Crew really caught the the tail end of uh, of disco in a lot of ways. Uh, their their costumes and you know even a little bit of their sound, you can kind of feel that late um, disco influence and and into the electronic and and sort of you know blurring of electronic and R&B and hip hop and along with the disco there. So in a funny way. Uh, has a lot in common with some of the hip hop that you know was happening in in New York in the in the late seventies, and I think you know there's there's still a lot of debate um, you know amongst who was sort of like the first hip hop uh, uh, you know the pioneers, and you know the, there's the whole trilogy of um, DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bambada and Grandmaster Flash, but there are a lot of sort of disco era DJs who claim to be like the real progenitors of hip hop. Um, but you know, other people consider them to be just disco. So it kind of a fun, uh, side note tangent. Off yeah. DJ anyway, Hollywood um, coming out at you. Exactly. Hollywood and flowers and all those guys. So, um, you know, we definitely have a claim. Um, and, and, you know, and they get mentioned in the book as well. But, um, but yeah, Dre, you know, didn't really love that, um scene and uh and he was um he was you know a little erratic <laughs> as a young guy and he would often sort of like dip out and um you know ditch a rehearsal or a concert you know to to uh go hang out with you know whatever um young woman he was particularly interested in at the time uh, so <laughs> eventually the band leader got kind of tired of it and um I think uh, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, Dre kept on um, getting all these like speeding tickets and parking tickets and he, he wouldn't pay them. And, um, and he ultimately, uh, he got thrown in jail for not paying um, all these, these tickets. And so um, when he went to his band leader to, to try to, you know, to get him to bail him out, which he had done before, finally the guy was like, no, you have to learn a lesson. And, and it was, uh, 
it was Easy E who ultimately helped him out. And so um, that was kind of the beginning of the relationship between Dre and Easy E and um, the beginnings of, of NWA, which would turn out to be one of the seminal groups, not only in West Coast hip hop, but just in, in hip hop uh, uh, more generally. Yeah, and they explode to prominence, platinum albums, massive controversy. We've talked about this on the show with uh, author Dan Charnas before, but that pretty much implodes when Dre leaves, wants to leave Ruthless Records, get away from Eazy-E. Ice Cube left first, and he meets a guy named Suge Knight and uh, another guy named Snoop Dogg and starts this uh, new wave of stuff called uh, on his album The Chronic. And let's hear a little bit of... Nothing but a G thing from Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. One, two, three into the folks. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip it up. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Compton and Long Beach together, now you know you in trouble. Ain't nothing but a G thing, baby. Too low depth. We're crazy. Death Row is the label that pays me. Unfatable, so please don't try to fake it. And that was Dr. Dre's third iteration in a career that sees him go from the techno disco styles of the world class wrecking crew then into the hardcore classic era of hip hop with NWA and Easy E and, and the DOC, and then creates a whole new style that takes hip hop. Not just from, you know, NWA was at the top of the charts and selling albums, but still kind of an underground thing. Dr. Dre's Chronic album and the Snoop Dogg first album, they exploded into the pop scene in a big way. That's right. They sure did. And, you know, I think one of the, the revolutionary things Dre did there was to really invent this idea of the G-Funk sound, um, which is characterized by that that kind of eerie whine that like... And the, you know the, the mini moog synthesizer noise and and um you know became sort of like the predominant sound in in you know starting in west coast hip-hop but then you know you see throughout the the rest of hip-hop uh you know filtering into that throughout the 1990s and yeah it just um between dre and and snoop um you know they, they had found this this kind of magic and it's funny, uh, Jimmy Iovine, who's head of Interscope Records at the time, which was, you know, the, the major label partner of uh, of Death Row, said they were sort of like um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards as <laughs> a combination. So, you know, they, they had they had quite a thing going and, and Dre would, would be the you know, the brains behind the turntables and you know, the making the, the beat, um, and, and Snoop was sort of the, the voice, although Dre of course as well and and meanwhile um diddy is getting an internship with a record company in new york uptown records that's right andre harrell gave him um a, an internship and you know diddy was coming back and forth from howard university you know sneaking on the amtrak bathroom so he didn't have to pay the fare uh, to, to, you know, do his internship, um, you know, he would come in, uh, I think on Fridays and over the weekend to work for Andre and eventually, um, eventually dropped out of Howard to work uh, at Uptown full time, started his own, um, imprint bad boy records and, and very quickly, uh, amassed his own fleet of interns. And, um, you know, and, and it came to a point where, you know, Diddy had so many people working for him at Uptown, 
that it, it was almost like he was more powerful than Andre was in his own company. So Andre fired him. Uh, and, uh, did he simply went and took the bad boy concept, you know, to, um, to, to, uh, to another label to, uh, to Clive Davis where he was able to get a, a, a pretty remarkable deal. But, you know, there, there's a great bit in the book there of, of, you know, Diddy going around and here he is in his early twenties, you know, unemployed. Uh, I think his girlfriend is pregnant and, or maybe just had a baby and, and, but he goes in, you know, to all these meetings with, um, you know, with these major label guys, uh, who have only the faintest idea of what hip hop even is at this point. And, you know, he's going in there and telling them, I want my own imprint. You know, I want my own staff. I want multi-million dollar advance, you know, and I want a cherry on top. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, just going in with these sort of like ridiculous demands and, um, you know, but, but people kind of being like, Oh gosh, you know, I, I think we should, I think we should give it to him. And, and ultimately he gets this crazy, uh, deal with, with Arista. Uh, yeah, there's a quote so, I've got to know. read, uh, from the book, yeah. uh, that's, that's popped out of that is just so classic. And he's just told him he can't do anything with vanilla eyes. Who's one of the biggest hip hop acts in the world at that point. And he just says, I can't touch that fool. And then he says, when you guys get in a room with all them suits and you're going to decide who you, what you're going to pay puff, just when you get to a number you think it's going to make Puff happy, get crazy on top of that. And then when you're there, I want whipped cream and a cherry on top. So that's that's the audacity of the young Puff yeah. Daddy. And let's go ahead and, and hear a track, uh, one of the first early big boy tracks. This is the Notorious B.I.G., although we won't actually hear him in this little snippet. We'll just hear Mace and a little bit of Puff Daddy. This is Mo Money, Mo Problem. And that was Mo Money Mo Problems from Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, which um, was basically Puff Daddy's big star and front man uh, for the first wave of Bad Boy Records. Tell us a little bit about that relationship and the role it played in, in Diddy's Rise. Yeah, so, you know, um, it was kind of a one of those little footnotes in history that, that turns out to be, um, you know, kind of game-changing, uh, certainly in the, in the music business. But when Diddy um, left to go over uh, from from Uptown to... Um, to a restep for his deal to start Bad Boy, um, he was able to to bring Biggie along, who he just signed, and you know basically buy out um, Biggie's contract for it was just a couple hundred thousand dollars, something like that, uh, and 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 bring him over with him. Um, and you know I think much as uh, much as Snoop Dogg was sort of the the voice for Dre, um, you know, Biggie became the voice for Diddy and, you know, Dre and Diddy, um, although, you know, if you look them up on Wikipedia, rapper is one of the things you see, uh, 
it's you know being a rapper is is not either of their uh, forte so they're primarily producers and you know i mean diddy especially is, is really more of an impresario if you think of somebody like barry gordy he's you know yes he's about um producing but he's also about sort of a and ring and and you know getting getting all these different acts together figuring out what sounds good together finding other producers and bringing them in to work on different songs um you know he he's a he's a connector and um and you know one of the things that both of them always needed was sort of like like a really brilliant lyricist to rap on their tracks and uh and that's what you know Diddy found in in Biggie arguably the the wittiest um you know of of any rapper ever and speaking of brilliant lyricists the prodigal Jay-Z despite uh, some early work as a protege for Big Daddy Kane in the late 80s, and he was recognized for his his remarkable flow and lyrical gifts right away. But he doesn't. He takes his time getting into the music business. What do he do instead? Yeah, Jay Z found um, you know as much as he liked uh, rapping early on, it was just not very lucrative, and he discovered that uh, that selling drugs was was quite a bit um, more financially rewarding. So. You know, he was out um, taking product that came into New York, um, you know, either through, uh, usually somebody would sneak it through JFK, um, and then it would get distributed, um, you know, out, out you know, the, the further you got down the uh, eastern seaboard, the better price you could get for it. Um, so Jay-Z was out going down to places like Maryland and, and so forth, um, you know, to to try to sell, uh, to sell his product, you know, supply and demand, right. Um, the, the supply was not there and, uh, the demand was, so he would take from areas where there are more supply like New York, go down and, uh, you know, get, get a little, little mark up there. So, um, it wasn't until a, uh, a DJ producer and uh, record label executive by the name of DJ Clark Kent, uh, really kind of, kept nagging him to come back and, and record that he finally did. Um, and he ended up teaming up with a guy by the name of Damon Dash um, and uh, another guy by the name of Kareem Biggs Burke to, uh, to, to put together a record label of their own when he couldn't get a, a major label deal. And that record label Rockefeller, uh, they, they had so much cash flow from their other businesses that they were able to muscle in, kind of buy their way into the scene in a way that most fledgling record labels are not able to do. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, they, you know, um, they, they had a, quite a bit uh, of cash saved up, so they were able to, you know, to, to really get some things done. But, of course, you know, after, after that first album came out, Reasonable Doubt, um, you know, which was released independently, uh, there was such a buzz around Jay-Z that... Um, that you know he he started to draw interest from the same major labels that turned him down, and in fact, ultimately, Def Jam came through and um, and agreed to uh, to a deal that that made them essentially partners with Rock Nation. Uh, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Rockefeller Records and uh, and and bring Jay Z in, into their fold at the same time. And around the same time, some other figures are getting involved. Come into the picture, Tupac Shakur, and we've mentioned Suge Knight briefly, I think, but but 
the, you know, Dre was partners with Jimmy Iovine at Interscope, but he was also partners with Shoot Knight, who's the guy who got him out of his deal with uh, Easy es Ruthless Records. And a lot of people in here call Shoot kind of a studio gangster, but nonetheless, the violence gets amped up around this time. Tupac is shot in, in a tragic and still pretty unexplained scene. He, he dropped by to see his friend Biggie, who was recording in New York, and gets shot any insights on that or, or talk about the, the spiraling of violence that leads to the infamous east coast west coast wars yeah so tupac and biggie were you know uh friends early on and, and in fact like you say tupac was going to visit biggie in the recording studio when he got shot and and robbed and um you know at, at that point in time uh tupac kind of concluded that you know biggie had either set him up or had somehow ordered this uh, really hit on him. Um, you know, even though Biggie tried to visit him in the hospital and, and all, and all this stuff. So, um, you know, there were, uh, you know, there still, still are a lot of conflicting theories as, as to what happened, but, um, you know, in my view, it, it really, it seemed like Tupac, uh, you know, this unfortunate thing happened to him and, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, kind of became a little paranoid and assumed that it had to do with Biggie um, and, and thus kind of like set off this, this whole, um, you know, eventually this whole sort of East Coast, West Coast feud. And um, Tupac ended up uh, getting, you know, hauled off to jail uh, shortly thereafter. And um, it was Suge who came in and, and bailed him out and basically said, you know, like, I'm going to. I'm going to be your protector. And, and, um, I think Tupac was getting increasingly kind of paranoid around, around this point in time. And, and should really whispered in his ear, like, you know, kind of encouraged that fear and, um, you know, created the sort of like militarized, uh, atmosphere where, you know, everybody was having bulletproof vests and there were armed guards and the death row headquarters, you know, I think they made it like a bank vault and, you know, there were pit bulls everywhere and all this stuff. So, it was just very, um, it was like a very aggressive atmosphere. And, uh, you know, I think that although, I mean, none of these guys were, you know, were violent people growing up. I mean, you know, Tupac was a, was a guy who, who studied, um, at an Academy for the arts with Jada Pinkett in Baltimore. And, you know, um, he, I think took ballet lessons and, you know, was a poet and, um, you know, Biggie on the other side of it was a, was a real mama's boy. I actually interviewed his mom about all of this. And, you know, of course she's his mom, but she's saying he's the sweetest, gentlest guy in the world. And, you know, uh, and, and all these different stories from, from his youth kind of bearing that out. And, you know, even Suge Knight, um, you know, people who I talked to who dealt with him early on in his career said, you know, he wasn't this gangster. Um, he just kind of realized that people sort of thought he was and people found him intimidating. And, um, and, you know, and, and even though Diddy was somebody who grew up in a, in a relatively wealthy suburb and, um, you know, he did, he did have this sort of like gangster past you know, connection, but, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways for him, it was like, um, it was almost like, a just a, a like a part of his resume and, and less about who he actually was. So, um, you know, when, when Suge Knight kind of decides that he's going to go in and, and, and be the, 
the big bad wolf of hip hop, you know, I think that these other guys become a little bit um, uh, like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? So, you know, it, it becomes a situation of, uh, I think Fab Five Freddy said it's like a bad gangster movie and, you know, everybody's trying to, to play the part um, as opposed to, you know, they're being sort of like career criminals or, or people who are actually gangsters. It was, it was more of a, it was more of like a, like a, a pageant that, that became very, very real, unfortunately. Yeah, and instant tragedy with the deaths of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, both of which are still unsolved. And that, and that leads us to our next song we're going to queue up, which Diddy has to suddenly become the front man. He, he, he loses uh, Biggie Smalls, he loses Mace to the church, and so he, he queues up his biggest hit, Missing You. This is Puff Daddy and Missing You. And that was uh, Puff Daddy's Missing You, which draws heavily on a, on a sample uh, from the police, Every Breath You Take, and it works. It takes Puff Daddy to the top of the charts and, and keeps Bad Boy uh, on the run, but a lot of people hate on that song. The sample's too obvious, it's, it's corny. Talk a little bit about how Puff balanced that, the, the pop appeal and then the backlash to, to his work. Yeah, you know, I think it's always been sort of a, like a key tension for, for Diddy um, is, you know, he he wants to draw on his roots and sort of like allude to his, his gangster lineage, um, but at the same time, you know, wants to appeal to to a broader pop audience. And and that's kind of like the, the bad boy sound is that is that mix. It's that sort of like aspirational uh you know like it's got a hard edge but it's you know it's also about um success and and glamour and and, and so forth and um i think i'll be missing you this part of the you know it's kind of like i don't know maybe the the best example of that um and you know i think he really sort of just took it all head on and embraced it and you know, there he was in uh, on the front of the newspapers dating J-Lo or, you know, hosting Saturday Night Live or appearing as a musical guest or what have you. And, um, you know, Diddy ultimately is a hand and he, he loves his spotlight and was able to, I think, you know, um, to, to really soak it up. But at the same time, without Biggie, who was sort of, you know, the, the lyrical engine of bad boy, um, it was, uh, it was harder to sustain, uh, things on the music side. And, and he manages to, to diversify around this time into clothing and starts his alcohol endorsements, but he has one last set of brushes with the law that I think was sort of the last warning for him. And he, and how did he choose which fork in the road to take there? That's right. Yeah, there was an incident at a nightclub um, that when she fled the scene, um, and you know, ended up 
sort of getting off without having, you know, any, any major, uh, legal repercussions, although an associate, uh, of his, a rapper by the name of shine, who was sort of the supposed to be the heir apparent to Biggie ended up getting, um, uh, sent to jail for, for a long time and eventually deported. And then I think he, he, um, I think he ended up in Israel, he, like converted to Judaism or something. Anyway, um, uh, interesting side note, but yeah, you know, Diddy, I think realized that, you know, um, that kind of anything, any, any kind of brush of the law would, would, uh, any brush with the law would, you know, really have a, a serious impact on his business. And, you know, it, it wasn't worth kind of putting themselves in those situations or, or being around, you know, a certain kind of person or scenario. And, um, you know, I think he, he really doubled down on, um, on, on sort of, you know, the commercial Diddy image and, you know, it's something you see, um, in, you know, happening around that period of time, like late nineties, early aughts with, with a lot of hip hop stars from, you know, Snoop Dogg to, to, uh, to Diddy, of course. And, and just this idea of, you know, what does it look like when hip hop becomes part of the mainstream and, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's Snoop Dogg hanging out with Martha Stewart and, uh, you know, um, uh, or, or whether it's Diddy kind of getting into these situations, um, you know, becoming a spokesman for, for different brands or appearing in Broadway shows or, or what have you. And, uh, I think Diddy found that that was kind of like a, like a more tenable lifestyle in the end. And and Dre was clearly chastened by the whole all the tragedies and disasters of the Shug Knight era. Separates himself from Shug, puts out an album, in The Aftermath. You know what? Seven years after he did The Chronic, and and becomes more of a producer with Eminem, and so forth. Whereas Jay Z initially uh, hits big, doing sort of big influenced street raps, but then he tries to follow. Diddy into the pop jiggy world and doesn't do so well. It has to go back to the streets. And in the course of that, ends up stabbing a producer uh, who had, he accused of, of leaking his third album, I think. And tell us a little bit about Jay-Z's last brush with the streets. Yeah, um, it, it was a, a situation at a, uh, a nightclub again. Um, you know, the, the reports of various sort of mafioso lines that he said to this guy before um, allegedly stabbing him. And um, there was a whole high-profile high legal battle that stretched over a period of a year or two where it looked like Jay-Z might uh, get hauled off to jail in the end. Um, he, he sort of admitted uh, to attacking this guy but got off with uh, with probation and... Um, you know, really ended up saving his career. Uh, and, you know, again, I think realized that whatever this was, wasn't, wasn't worth it. And, um, that, that there was just so much, uh, more money to be made on the legitimate side of things. And, um, you know, and so as you see the, uh, the early aughts kind of roll along, um, you know, Jay-Z musically keeps tacking back and forth between, you know, more, more popular, more pop oriented sound and more street oriented sound. And, um, you know, finally in, in, uh, in 2003 puts out 
the Black Album, which is supposed to be his, his farewell, his retirement. Um, and, um, you know, like method by which he's going to ride off into the sunset, uh, and, and kind of focus on being an executive and, and mogul. Um, and, um, you know, that only lasts for, for a couple of years, uh, before he gets back into rapping again. And, and let's hear a little bit of Jay-Z. This is, uh, from the Black Album, this was produced by Rick Rubin. And this is 99 Problems. And that was 99 Problems by Jay-Z, which, uh, even though he was claiming he was retiring at the time, that's definitely the moment when he absolutely conquered the mainstream and became, you know, sort of a legacy rock star at that point. Everybody knew who Jay-Z was. He was he was accepted, beloved, admired. And then, like Dre and Diddy, he expands his business, not just with RockAware, but uh, into internet streaming services like Tidal. Tell us a little bit about Jay-Z's business empire. Yeah, so, you know, after Jay-Z retires, he... Um, he, you know, he takes a job running Def Jam for a while. Um, he then kind of unretires, uh, signs this landmark deal with Live Nation that's going to encompass uh, touring and recording and also side business ventures. And really, um, that deal, which you know, the first deal I think was $150 million um, extending over 10 years, uh, it kind of balloons out in, into all these different um, side ventures, including rock nation um which is now his kind of catch-all entertainment company and includes a uh a, 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 like a sports agency management company record label and so forth and um you know it, it is involved it has its tentacles in, in you know all sorts of different parts of the entertainment world so um jay-z meanwhile is just making scads and scads of money and decides um uh, in I think it's 20, 2014, 2015, um, to buy a Scandinavian streaming service called Tidal uh, for about $50 million. And the idea being that, you know, Spotify um, is, you know, really cleaning up uh, and, and making all this headway in the U.S. market, but, you know, um, not owned by artists. And, you know, uh, why not have artists come in and, and buy a different Scandinavian streaming service and really make it a, a true competitor. And so he gets together this whole roster of acts from Beyonce to Kanye West to Calvin Harris to Daft Punk to Jason Aldean and Madonna and Alicia Keys. And uh, they all sign up and, and become part owners of this thing and, um, and decide to really try to, to establish it as, as a true alternative to Spotify. And so far in his business history, he's had a real knack for selling at the right time. You know, he got out of clothing at the right time. He got out of liquor at the right time. Now that Jeff Bezos and Amazon are getting into high-quality streaming, they just announced that uh, last week, uh, is, is Jay-Z going to be out, able to get out a title at a profit? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's an interesting question. And, and in fact, a couple of years ago, um, he did get an investment um, from Sprint that, valued 
the company at $600 million or about 10 times what he paid for it. Um, you know, that was a couple of years ago. Uh, it's, it's debatable that it's, it's actually worth as much as, you know, um, that deal valued at. I mean, it's unclear whether somebody would, um, pay that level or even half as much, but, um, you never know. Somebody might come along and pay twice as much. And, uh, you know, like you say, with, uh, a company like Amazon getting into the sort of high quality streaming that, that title tried to use to differentiate itself at first, um, you know, you can, you can imagine a company like that coming along and, and, you know, dropping a, a big amount on title to, to, to really be almost sort of like a prestige play. And, and, you know, in a way, uh, much like sort of Apple did by buying beats, um, which Dr. Dre had started. And, you know, when that, when that deal happened, $3 billion for beats, a lot of people thought, oh, why is Apple buying a headphone company? But, really what they were acquiring was, you know, a headphone company, um, the talents of Dr. Dre and his co-founder, Jimmy Iovine, and, um, you know, and also the skeleton of a streaming service that became Apple Music. So, um, you know, that deal uh, it was able to, to really help Apple get its footing in the streaming world, um, you know, and you wonder if a company like Amazon would want to come along and do the same thing um, someday with, uh, with Jay-Z and the title. And I'm glad you brought up Dre and Beats because Dre, unlike the other two, and very typical of his pattern as a producer where he is anything but prolific as a as an artist, he has been very careful with his business decisions. And so Beats, you know, he's not into clothes. He's not into liquor like the other guys. He's He does Beats, but that's sold for so much money that he's basically set. And I noticed on the 19th uh, at Forbes, which is your day job as a senior editor there, you dropped uh, the highest paid hip hop artists of the year list. And, and you've got Jay-Z at number two with 81 million and Diddy's uh, number four at 70 million. Dre's not on the list anywhere. Is, is he hurting? Uh, he's not, he's certainly not hurting. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he's, uh, he's worth somewhere around, um, I believe the latest number we had was around seven or $800 million. Uh, you know, he, uh, when Apple came in and bought beats, they had a, uh, the last chunk of the money that they were going to pay him was paid out over four years and for him to be, you know, involved in some capacity with, um, with the company. But, um, you know, that deal is up and he hasn't been doing really much of anything, um, over the past year. And, uh, and why would he, he certainly, he's, he's got it made. Um, so, you know, yeah, on, on that list, most of the people that, that you see are people who are actively touring, um, you know, even somebody like Jay-Z still tours, um, you know, often with his wife, Beyonce, uh, and they sell out stadiums. So, I mean, I guess why wouldn't you? Um, but, uh, but I think Dre, you know, Dre's kind of made his money and, and he's, and he's going to maybe chill out for a while. Um, I, you know, I, I think if he, if the urge strikes him, um, I imagine he'll make more music and, people I talk to in the industry say that, you know, he's got a vault with hundreds of unreleased tracks. Uh, but he's such a perfectionist that, you know, he might, he might never, uh, decide to, to let them go. So, um, you know, I think he's one of, one of those, uh, types of people who doesn't need to be out there all the time and, um, you know, have his name in the news. Uh, I think he, he's perfectly comfortable, you know, sitting back and, and enjoying his life. 
And uh, this is Zach O'Malley Greenberg, author of Three Kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, and Hip Hop's Multi-Billion Dollar Rise. Thanks for coming on the show. And to me, it's just a fascinating tale because we've seen you know, earlier generations of entrepreneurs in music, like Barry Gordy comes to mind, Russell Simmons, uh, you know, Buck Owens on the country music side, but really never seen anybody ascend not since Gene Autry, at least, you know, who ended up owning baseball teams and things like that, ascend into the ultimate, you know, top tier of the wealthy around the world. So it's it's a fascinating tale. And Zach, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Nate returns next week with Mark Yarm to talk about his classic, Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, and hip-hop's multi-billion dollar rise is published by Little Brown and Company. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.